This passage that Noah read for us contains some of the most cherished truths in the whole Bible. But for being as cherished as it is, it can also affect strong negative reaction if we use verse 28 here to, in effect, uh, skip to the end. What I mean by that is when we try to wave off a hard time for someone with Romans 8.28, bypass their emotion, cheer up their confusion, otherwise seem dismissive of the real trauma that someone is going through by turning Romans 8.28 into essentially a platitude. And that's the regrettable aspect of verses, passages that are so well-loved, so well-worn, that uh, they, they can turn into platitudes. We don't really mean to do that, it just kind of happens. But um, Romans 8.28 sometimes gets turned into another way of saying everything's going to be okay. Or everything happens for a reason. That's cold comfort. And it's not the, it's not the meaning of this passage anyway. In a book entitled, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, Kate Bowler, a divinity school professor and cancer survivor, writes about what she calls, quote, the trite cruelty in the logic of the perfectly certain. Those Christians who feel the need to minimize a hard season with uh, vending solutions, those who are perfectly certain there must be a perfectly good lesson for you in this hard time, and all you have to do is count your blessings and be faithful. She writes in an appendix she, she gives as she was going through stage four cancer, uh, some of uh, a sampling of uh, Romans 8.28 uh, badly handled. Number one, well, at least, whoa, she says, hold up there. What were you about to do? Make a comparison? At least it's not what, stage five cancer? Don't minimize. In my long life, I have learned that Okay, she says, I get it. Some people uh, live forever. Well, some of us are worried we won't or that things are so hard we won't want to. So ease up on our life lessons. Life is a privilege, not a reward. It's going to get better, I promise. Well, fairy godmother, that's going to be a tough row to hoe when things go badly. God needed an angel. This one takes the cake. Because A, it makes God look sadistic and needy, and B, angels are, according to Christian tradition, created from scratch, not dead people looking for a cameo with Patrick Swayze in Ghost. You see how confusing it is when we pretend that the deceased returned to help you find your car keys or make, or make art. Everything happens for a reason. The only thing worse than saying this is pretending that you know the reason. I've had hundreds of people tell me the reason for my cancer, because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness, because God is fair, because God is unfair, because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. No one is short of reasons. So if people tell you this, make sure you are there when they go through the cruelest moments of their lives and start offering your own. When someone is drowning, the only thing worse than failing to throw them a life preserver is handing them a reason. I've done some research and... 
Okay, I thought I should listen to my oncologist and my nutritionist and my team of specialists, but it turns out that I should be listening to you. Yes, please tell me more about the medical secrets that only one flaxseed provider in Orlando knows. Wait, let me get a pen. She goes on and on with some of these that she's heard. We laugh because we've been there. We understand how this happens. She's earned the right to snark a bit at these insensitivities. They're well-intentioned, they're well-meaning, but they still hurt. This passage in Romans 8, I want to start by saying it is not the proof text for everything happens for a reason theology that eventually you're going to be able to draw all these nice, straight, linear lines between bad events and good outcomes in a way that will make sense to us all. Everything's going to be okay. Without questioning God's sovereignty in the least, divine will is prior to and above all human willing. We cannot always know, and we will not always know why this or that happens or doesn't. What we can know and what the scripture is emphatic about is that God's purposes are evidenced somehow, some way in all things. Maybe not known to us here, maybe known to us later on, maybe never known to us, but we can know God is purposeful in all his ways. He's never random. And we can know that he's brought us in on all his ways, but Christian hope is not everything's going to be okay. Much is not going to be okay. And yet God's purposes for those who love him are ultimately good. This is Christian hope. But how do we know? How do we know God's purposes for us are good? Well, there's, there's two ways according to this text. The first we'll talk about is the praying of the Spirit of God for the people of God. That's the first thing we'll talk about in this passage. And then we'll talk about the purposing of God to shape, the word in verse 29 is conform, to conform the people of God in the image of the Son of God. And we've been talking in this series about cruciforming, being shaped by the cross. So how we know God's purposes for us are good, two ways according to this text. The first is the praying of the Spirit of God for the people of God, and then the purposing of God to conform, to shape the people of God in the image of the Son of God. Let's unpack these. How do we know God's purposes for those who love him, according to verse 28, and that's believers in Jesus. All believers in Jesus are people who love Jesus. This is not some kind of elite troops, but the saints, verse 27. The saints, verse 27, is comprehensive. All who are in Christ will love him. And so that being us, people in Christ, we will love him. How do we know God's purposes are ultimately good? First, we know this because the praying of the Spirit of God for the people of God. You see it in the text here in verses 26 and 27. This is really a remarkable thing to consider. Look at it again with me, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
according to the will of God. Intercedes, intercedes. This, this emphasis on the praying of the Spirit of God. And it says at the end there, verse 27, prays, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, which is the very thing you and I need to be in on. What is prayer? What is our praying to God? Prayer is the practice of presenting ourselves to God to do his will. That's why we pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So then the spirit praying for us, follow this text, verses 26 and 27, is is. Even in our, uh, I love the way the message, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation puts uh, verse 26, even in our wordless sighs and aching groans, even in our sufferings, the Holy Spirit of God is presenting us to God to do his will. The Spirit is working for this in and through our praying. So prayer is the practice of presenting ourselves to God to do his will, practice the practice of building a relationship with God, we do that as we pray. Prayer is the practice of building a relationship with God, the God who is always present to me, so that I want to do his will. And the Spirit of God is our best advocate for this because he never resists the will of God. In fact, the Spirit prays us into wanting the will of God. I love this. There's two great names for God in this chapter, Romans 8. Chapter uh, 8, verse 15, remember we looked at the spirit of adoption, great name for God. Here you've got another one in verse 27, he who searches hearts. This means not only that he knows us better than we know ourselves, it also means he's for us. Can I overemphasize this? I don't think I can. Verse 26, first part, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Why? Because he more than anyone wants the will of God for us. He better than anyone knows our weakness, our impediments. And yet he stays true to God and he stays true to us. It's a marvelous thing. Going on in verse 26, the middle part of verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And when he says that, He means not that nothing occurs to us to pray, that we don't have the words. We've got plenty of words in Scripture. We've got the Psalms. We've got Paul's prayers, for instance, Jesus' uh, prayer that he taught us to pray. We can pray the prayers of old back to God. When he says in verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, he means our ought is broken. And so, rest of verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. We know our ought is broken. This is the problem as Romans has been presenting it to us. We've seen in this chapter, Romans 8, creation groans, we groan, and now here the Spirit of God groans with us, which means this is not whining. No, it's it's something more core to us being God's people in the world. This groaning is yearning. It's longing for something better. Paul David Tripp in his book, A Quest for More, puts it this way. We are supposed to groan because there are things that we have been promised but do not yet have. We are supposed to groan because the full expression of God's kingdom has not yet come. 
We are supposed to groan because we are not yet all that God shed the blood of his son for us to become. We are supposed to groan because the temporary pleasures of this physical world do not satisfy us. They always leave a void in our hearts. We are supposed to groan because in every situation and circumstance, we see the damage that sin has done and is doing, and it's comprehensive. We are supposed to groan because we recognize how we each give in to the temptation to seek in the physical world what we can only find in the Lord. I told you earlier in our Roman studies, that's what we do in sin. That's that's the essence of it. In sin, we go seeking something for ourselves that we will not seek from our Savior. And this grieves the Spirit of God. But his grieving for us is not his groaning for us. His groaning is his wanting for us more of God than we often want for ourselves. His wanting us to want God for God himself. Do you want God for God or just for the things he does for you? The will of God, verse 27, the will of God as the goal of the Spirit's intercession for us. It's not a list of activities. If you think of the will of God as this burden that's going to be imposed on you, now it's all this extra stuff, so much more to do. I think you're, you're thinking of it not in the, in the right way. We should think of the will of God as desire for God, desiring him. I want to do his will, not so that he'll bless me or won't discipline me or keep trouble far away from me. That, that all enters into it. It's all part of our mix, yes. But I want to do his will because come what may, in doing his will, that's how I get more of God himself. Not doing the will of God, the will of God understood to be in Romans, the, the cultivated trust in God, obedience from the heart. We looked at that in chapter 6, serving in the new way of the Spirit. We learned, looked at that in chapter 7. These, these, this way of, of accessing all that God has promised to be for us in Jesus. The will of God, not doing it, is, is to seek our fulfillment outside of God. And what we're told in this passage is that God's Spirit is continually praying me and you into greater insiderness with God. This is God's purpose. He's praying me into being dissatisfied with living at the surface of life, hiding my sin where it thrives. Sin dies when you bring it out in the open, you confess it to somebody, you bring it out in the light. He prays me into being dissatisfied with lapsing in trust and, and giving into fear. The Spirit of God is tuned to the higher frequency of my heart. You know, there's these frequencies that we can't hear and, and uh, maybe children might be able to hear and the adults can't hear. And, and this, this, this higher frequency of the heart is, is called here groanings too deep for words. This takes us to our second consideration the purposing of God to shape the people of God in the image of the Son of God. There's two things in this passage, and this is the second one, the, the purposing of God to shape, to conform this word there in verse 29, conform, cruciform the people of God 
in the image of the Son of God. This is verses 28 through 30. And by image, says there in verse uh, 29, we are to be conformed, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. By image is meant the character and the concerns of God in flesh, Jesus. And note that verse 28 begins with and, meaning it's a continuation from verses 26 and 27. But before looking at verse 28, we'll come to verse 28 here at the end. I want to take verses 29 and 30, come back to verse 28, because this word predestined in verse 29, and you see it's again in verse 30, you see it repeated, verse 29, predestined, again in verse 30, trips a lot of people up. Now, maybe not a lot of us here, as I think I have a pretty good theological pulse of this room, most of us are not troubled by affirming the elective purposes of God in a reformed theological context. But looking at this, again, we're going to come back to verse 28 in a moment. Looking at verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to the character and concerns of, of God in flesh, the character and concerns of Jesus becoming our own, foreknew, this word in verse 29 there, conveys prior relationship with us. It's really a staggering thing to consider. Now, there is a sense to foreknowledge that God knows everything ahead of its happening. Of course he does. He's an infinite being. He knows not just the actual, but also the potential, what will be as well as what is. So he's never surprised. But that's not the sense of foreknowledge here. The sense here in this context is actually prior relationship with us. Prior knowing us before we knew him. Prior wanting us before we wanted him. The spirit who intercedes for us is called after all. Remember verse 15? The spirit of adoption. God has included us in his family by adoption. So when you read verse 29, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, it's among many adopted brothers. There's only one begotten son and the rest of us are adopted in. This is all of God. And because it's all of God, it becomes impossible really for us to think of ourselves as bringing ourselves in on this. In fact, I think the further you advance with God, the more you realize just how much he does for us, how much of the initiative is his and the response is ours. But even our response is conditioned. This context, the whole chapter, it's, it's about what God does for us. He intervenes on our slavery to sin. Remember this in chapter 6? He, he intervenes on our slavery to sin. And now we get to chapter 8 and we find that not only has he intervened on our slavery to sin, but, he, but now through his spirit he intercedes for us, not just when we're doing great, but in our, again, those words, wordless sighs and aching groans. And he works in and through all things in a fallen world. That's going to include the, the tangled underbrush. <clears throat> That's going to include the crushing overhead. All things for the good of his adopted sons and daughters, the people he loves in this world, the people who get to call him Abba, Father, because he first loved us. We love him. That's what these terms, as we have them in verses 29 and 30, are underscoring the intentional initiative of God, really the vocation of God to redeem, to redeem us fully. 
at the end of verse 28, you get those who are called according to his purpose. And then he, he takes you into that progression that, that there's those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, nor they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And when you put those terms, those key terms together, foreknowledge, again, not just prior knowledge, but prior relationship, predestination, the determination of God to direct everything according to his set decrees, set before the foundation of the world in the purposes of God, Ephesians 1 tells us. But understand, if you trip over that word predestined, and I know some, some people do, if you think of Calvinists as always spiking the ball, you know, the old canons of Dort, uh, which I'm sure you read this morning over cereal uh, before you came in, Calvinistic creeds from <laughs> 16th century, I think. Here's what the canons of Dort, Calvinistic creeds, say of divine sovereignty. That it, quote, does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties or coerce a reluctant will by force, close quote. In other words, God's way in redeeming and transforming the redeemed is not to force us in, but to call us in. The next word in the progression, called. It's not to force us to, but call us to. Look again, verse 30, called is the next word behind predestined. And it's a word of invitation. Really, it's a word of vocation. The word for vocation we get from this word to call, your occupation. The vocation of God is to intentionally invite. And we talk about calling as effectual. It's a, a, a high dollar theological word that, that means that God's call goes to where he is intended for it to work. God will accomplish his purposes for us because this is his work. This is his vocation. This is what he's an expert in is overcoming every one of our resistances to him with grace to shape us, to be occupied with him, our calling. We've talked in Romans already about the other two words here in the, in the list, justified and being glorified. I don't want to run past them, but we have spent a lot of time in Romans on justified there in verse 30 and glorified, last terms in the verse here. In fact, what God has done for us on this line is so certain. Verse 30 doesn't say we will be glorified. It just says glorified as if it's already happened because it will. This is really beautiful. It's a shame we argue over it because it's beautiful truth. The purposes of God for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now we go to verse 28 for those who are called according to his purpose. The end for us is glorious, but don't skip to it. We base our assurance with God, our security with God on what this and other passages teach that he's done for us. But note also from this passage, God does not skip to the end. I mean, if he did, if he just saved us and transported us right to heaven, that would be strange. The vocation of God on our behalf is established in all these terms here, but it's also being worked out over our lifetimes and a lot comes in and out of our lives. Don't skip to the end. Too often we do this with these familiar words in verse 28. 
We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is process intensive. This is over a lifetime. It doesn't skip to the end. There's an end in sight and it's glorious. God is intimately, intentionally, vocationally involved in our here and now. And most of the time we accept this readily, except when we're going through a hard thing. Tough stuff. We suffer in something we don't want. We suffer from something we don't want, did not ask for, and just want God to get us out of it. And along comes a well-meaning Christian on our worst day, our lowest moment, and says, oh, but you know, God is working in this. This is conforming you to Christ, and you want to punch them in the nose. And if Jesus himself were to show up in person on that worst day, you might scream at him, why have you let this happen to me? Why didn't you prevent this? Are you being an unfaithful Christian to have those feelings? No. In fact, the person who tries to wave your hard time off for you, tries to help you get over the emotion and confusion you're feeling by throwing Romans 8.28 on you as if that makes everything okay, that might be the Christian who's being unfaithful in that moment and that they don't know how to sit with you in your pain. Remember Job's miserable comforters? You don't see miserable and comforter go together. Job's miserable comforters had to preach to the pain. They had to analyze his situation. And God rebukes them at the end of that as those were the unfaithful ones, not Job, screaming his pain out to God. People who have no theology of lament and therefore they, they want everything to skip to the end. It's, it's more telling of, of you than the person in pain when, when you can't exist with them in it for a while. Here's how this will all work out for you. This is all really good, you know. Everything's going to be okay. A burden bearer doesn't do that. Although, here's the tension, a burden bearer, he or she does bring you to Romans 8, 28 and 29 because we've got to square with it. But they never do that as a drive-by. A burden bearer goes with you just because of Romans 8.28, actually. The people who, who, who saddle up with you to ride through a, a hard season, they're doing it because of Romans 8.28. They know that, that, that something is going to be worked through this, whether we see it or not, this side of heaven. Something, God is present. We do have to interpret our pains and problems in the light of what God has willed for us. And so much else that's good besides, I'm just talking about the hard side of it. God's purposes for us include everything. Trouble, praiseworthy events, great, gracious, marvelous things, and the opposites of all that. It includes things we like and things we wouldn't include, things you and I would not have chosen. But it's not always going to be that you connect all the dots, that, that you look back and say, oh, so now I see why that happened. So then this would happen, and then that would happen, and then everything worked out really wonderfully for me in the end. Now, sometimes you can do that. I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on those who can do that. I could, my own experience of coming to First of Anne is that kind of story. Now I can see why that happened so that that would happen so that I would come here. But sometimes you're not able to do that, draw this nice linear line between 
bad event, good outcome. A lot of times you can't do that. See, the promise in this verse, this go-to text, it doesn't always play out linear. It's loopy in the actual way it works out. It's like a coil. You know, you engineers will tell me, well, a coil, if you, oh, that's linear, you know, don't ruin my illustration. It's like spring action. You think of a spring, you know, a, a coil and, 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 and a spring action coil, you know, now it's compressed. It's under the weight of my confusion and my pain, but it's still there. And, and then it expands and, and, and I'm getting more understanding and I'm two years in or 20 years in. And, and, and you know, I can say, I, okay, I've, I've seen some things of the Lord that I would not have seen. I still don't want the bad thing, but I have seen good I can chart that. I can trace it. I, I see some growth with Jesus. I, I see his qualities developing in broken old me, and, and no one is more surprised than I am. But I still don't want all, the, the all things to include hard things. And the all things in verse 28 is pretty comprehensive. God works all things. I don't want all things to include hard things. But they will. And yet, here's the promise. All things will also include Christ, and that's what I want. The promise here is due to the vocation of God, the calling God who calls us to himself, leaves us in a fallen world, not alone, not as orphans, we're adopted. Eventually, the glorification of our bodies, the resurrection of ourselves, that glad morning that comes, but until then, there's these years, these decades and they can be full of trouble. And some of you, it, it feels like it's rained on your life more than others. Yes. I don't want all things to include hard things. I do want all things to include Christ. And I'm told here it does. Whether I can connect the dots or senses working, as old St. Patrick put it on his breastplate, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ over me, Christ undergirding me. This is what I want. And this is what I need. This is the purpose of my life, to get more of Christ. I want to be able to boast in, in my children. I, I want to be able to show uh, a successful trajectory in my career. I, I want to do these things that I've dreamt of and, and desire and, and work hard for and try to, to get and prevent the non-thing, the things I don't want from happening. But what I really want is more of Christ. And this is what I'm called to. This is at the center. This is the core of the purpose of God to give us more of the one we love, which may include the fellowship of his shared sufferings, but even so to give us more opportunity to grow in love of our Savior. This table that we move to now is a place where we worship and thank him for his good purposes. Let me leave you with this thought. The choir will sing. If anything says God can work his good purposes in anything, it's the cross. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for how you help us to understand and show us as we go through a text where we are that you plot the points for us. Lord, as we think about these things, we recognize our need for you, and we ask that you would help us, that you would help us not necessarily connect all the dots, 
but you would help us ascertain and gain more of Jesus Christ in everything that we go through. And though we don't want so many of the things we go through, we want the Savior. And we thank you for providing him to us with generosity. For if we could see what is ahead, not skipping to the end, but recognizing it's there, the sufferings of this present time do not compare with the glories that will be revealed when the sons and daughters of God stand in his presence in a renewed creation. We thank you that we can anticipate this as people who are expectant and longing and yearning for what we know will be better when you reign. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.